chapter 11 for our study time. And if you need a Bible, just uh, lift up your hand and the ushers will quickly drop one off to you so that you can follow along with us. Um, I'm going to tell you this ahead of time. I might run a little long tonight. But I promise I won't make a habit out of it, number one. Number two, I promise I won't ramble and go off topic. I know everything I want to say. I'm not going to get distracted, so I won't waste your time with things. And number three, if you can endure it, and I'm not talking about a half hour, I'm talking about maybe like five, ten minutes. But if you can endure it, I know you'll be blessed, because it's good stuff, good stuff here. And I'm just telling you ahead of time, um, so you've been warned. Romans chapter 11. In our study last week, we crossed over into a new section of the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 8 deal exhaustively and systematically with an understanding of the gospel. What is the gospel of God? And what does the gospel do when it is impacted or put upon a person's life? Or to put it in other words, 1 through 8 is about what is salvation? What does it mean to get saved from just a very practical standpoint? But as we cross now into chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul changes gears slightly. He hasn't really changed topics. He's still talking about the gospel. We, We know that this is still one track because by the time we get to chapter 12, he picks up again, uh, right back on track with the flow that started in 1 through 8. But but it could almost seem as though what we're looking at in these three chapters is somewhat unrelated to what we've heard in the first eight. He begins this new section, if you would, this, this subsection of the book of Romans, by pulling back the curtain of his heart a little bit. And letting us see something that is is constantly burdening him deep within his soul. He has a great burden and great longing for the salvation of the Jews. Right after telling us that there's no separation from the love of Christ, that there's nothing that compares to it, and how great it is, and how impacting it is within his life, and how much it has just lifted him, He immediately then says, but yet there's still this continual sorrow within my heart because I I would willingly set myself aside from God's grace so that they could receive it because my heart is so heavily desiring that they would become saved. He says before God and before his own conscience that he would willingly go to hell if it meant that the Jews would go to heaven. He tells us that it's a deep desire within his heart and that it's a constant well of prayer from within him that their eyes would be opened and that they would be saved. But at the same time he's telling us these things throughout these three chapters, he's also answering a very obvious and yet mysterious question that his audience might have after hearing what he said through the first eight chapters. And that is, if the gospel is so powerful, 
And the blood of Christ is so available and so sufficient to do what it claims. And if the love of God is so unstoppable and so rich and real, then why isn't everyone saved? Why isn't the whole world crawling upon broken pieces of glass trying to receive this all-sufficient grace? Pursuing a relationship with this all-consuming God. Why isn't that happening? And Paul asks the question in the context of the Jews, but it's also a question that we ask ourselves from time to time. Is it why? Why is it so hard for people to see? Why don't people come? And he answers the question in these chapters. He answers the question of what unseen factors are involved in a person coming to salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, if you missed out on last week's study, we cruised through chapters 9 and 10. I would highly suggest that you get the CD. Very puzzling and yet very important study to answer some of these kind of strange and puzzling questions in the Christian faith. But in chapter 11, where we pick up tonight, Paul answers another question. As we cross into this third chapter of this subsection here of Romans, Paul answers another question. And that is, what role does Israel, as a nation, as a people, play in, number one, the salvation of the world, and number two, God's entire plan of world events in the last days? As we get into chapter 11, we'll have an answer to those two questions. What role does Israel have in the salvation of the rest of the world? And what role does Israel play in God's entire plan for humanity? He begins in verses 1 through 10 by kind of dovetailing what we talked about last week into what we're talking about this week. He begins in the first couple of verses there by telling us that regardless of what the people of Israel look like nationally, or no matter how bad things look for them spiritually, that there's always a remnant of them that are saved by grace, that have a real relationship with God. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 there of chapter 11. Paul says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. He said, God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. In verses 1 and 2, Paul tells us very clearly that although it seems like Israel has been cast off by God, rejected and, you know, kind of suspended from his purposes, so to speak, expelled from his graces, Though it appears that way outwardly, Paul tells us very clearly that God is not through with the Jew. Many good things came out of the Protestant Reformation. There was a great return to the scriptures. By and large, the scriptures had been neglected and church tradition and religiosity had taken over whatever there was left of Christianity at that time. But there was a great return to the scriptures during the time of the Reformation. There were massive numbers of people that came to saving faith in Christ. The revivalists came out of the, 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 um, the Reformation. Martin Luther, John Knox, John Bunyan, Calvin, the Wesleys. You know, things that we read today and the fruit of their work for the Lord is still touching lives, our lives, even today. 
Many of the hymns and choruses that we sing were the direct result of the Reformation. The founding of our nation upon its principles, our founding documents are in many ways a direct fruit of the Protestant Reformation. Eventually, the Great Awakenings and a lot of the things that have taken place in this country, it's trickled down from what took place during that time when God moved so powerfully. But there was one thing that came out of the Protestant Reformation that that was a bad thing. There was one very negative undertone that kind of carried all the way through that whole time. And that is that by and large, the, the reformers, they took the position that God was done with Israel. That the church more or less replaced Israel as God's chosen, and that Israel, the Jews, were nothing more than Christ killers. And so therefore they're expelled from the purposes of God and that God essentially is through with the Jew. That was the position that they took. Whenever you look at a Bible, a study Bible from those days, if you can get your hands on a Geneva Bible or one of the you know, antique study Bibles from that day, whenever you read a section in the Old or New Testament that maybe discusses a blessing and a curse... Whenever there's a a curse that's expounded or explained, the heading over that curse will always say, curses upon Israel. But then when you read the parallel passage that talks of the blessing, the heading will say, blessings upon the church. Curses upon Israel, blessings upon the church. Well, how can you do that? But yet, that was the position that they took. Now, the problem with this replacement theology that they embraced, that the church more or less replaced Israel as God's chosen people, is that, first of all, God made a covenant with Abraham. He confirmed it to Isaac and to Jacob, his descendants, and then he expanded and reaffirmed it through David and through the prophets. And God does not renegotiate the covenants that he makes. He doesn't change his mind or amend his promises. When God speaks, his word stands. It doesn't change like the world's. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 35 and 36, God says this, Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. The Lord says, that's his covenant, that's his promise, and it doesn't cease. Now Paul says here that God has not cast away his people, and thus the assertion that God has somehow cast off Israel is completely unbiblical, and it makes God a liar. God is not through with the Jew. He has a plan for them. He has had a plan for them. Paul says the Jew that he foreknew, that from the beginning of time, God knew what he was going to do with the Jew. He knew what they would do in rejecting his son. He knew everything that would take place all the way to their final day, as we shall see in our study tonight, that God is not through with the Jew. Now that's good news. Because if God is not through with the Jew, then that means he's not through with you either. If God still has a plan for Israel, then God certainly is going to keep the covenant that he made with you and with me. Now, 
Paul goes on to say now that no matter how small and seemingly invisible the remnant is, that there will always be a remnant of Jews that are saved by faith. He goes on to quote Elijah there in verse 2. Again, he says, What ye not, or know ye not, what the Scripture saith of Elijah? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? God said, I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then, at this present time, also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is not of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Quoting Elijah, he says that even in that time when it seemed as though he was the only one, that there was only one believing Jew amongst this whole nation of people, God said there are 7,000 of them here under the radar that you don't even know about that haven't bowed the knee that I have reserved to myself. He says in times past when it seemed like the Jews were cast off, God says, no, I've got a believing remnant. And then Paul says, even in this present day, when it seems that the Jews are nothing more than Christ killers, when Paul was writing, he says, no, there's a remnant of Jews that believe, citing himself, saying, I also am a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So God always will hold on. There will always be a remnant of believing Jews uh, in this. And then he solidifies his case concerning this remnant amongst the blind by quoting David in verses 7 through 10. He says, what then? Israel, nationally, collectively, hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, let their table be made a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back always. That that this was foretold, it was foreknown, that the Jews, by and large, would be blinded. That they wouldn't see, that they wouldn't receive Christ in His first coming. But there's a reason for that. Now, by the way, your attitudes and your actions, and mine make a difference. It affects you too. Why? Because God, when he called Abraham, he made a promise. He said, I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. And if God's covenant to Abraham still stands, and if God's promise to sustain the Jewish nation still is upheld, then that promise is also true. So the way you and I act towards Israel or towards the Jewish people is going to directly affect our blessing, our situation, because God says, now I have seen that firsthand. I've seen it in my own life, and I've seen it in the lives of others, that those that are supporters of Israel, and helpers of the Jews, and those that pray for the peace of Jerusalem, like the scriptures tell us to, that there's a blessing that God puts in their life, in their path. Contrary, those that hide secret hatred, those that you know, in their heart, cast a stumbling block before them, 
or those that curse them vocally or otherwise, that to them God says you are cursed. And there's a very real curse and stumbling that can happen in the life of a Christian that takes that position. So be lovers of Jews. Believe me, God's word does not return void. Now, why? The question is, why? Why did God blind the Jew? What would be the reason that God would call Abraham, form this nation, bring forth the scriptures, send his Messiah all through this nation, and then blind them to the very salvation that they were producing? What would be the reason for that? Why would God, in his foreknowledge, do this? Well, two reasons that Paul's going to give in the remainder of this chapter. Number one is to save the Gentiles. That the blinding of Israel resulted in the salvation of the rest of the nations. That's number one. And number two, in order to fulfill his plan for planet Earth. Or, if you would, he did it as a platform to play out his plan for planet Earth. For those of you that like tongue twisters. Write it down however you want. But number one... He did it in order to save the Gentiles, in order to reach the other nations. Look at verse 11. Paul says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, through their blinding, through their rejecting of Messiah, salvation has come unto the Gentiles in order to provoke them, that is the Jews, to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them the failure of Israel, be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means, now remember, Paul's whole reason for writing these three chapters is because he wants the Jews saved. He says it again here. If by any means I may provoke to emulation, that is, jealousy within, them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, or the rest of the world, then what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? In other words, if the falling away of the Jews produced the salvation of the Gentiles, it brought so much life. If the falling of them could produce that, then when God brings them back, how glorious will that be? If the detriment of Israel is the benefit of the world, then how much greater of a benefit will it be when it's not detriment, but blessing back, you know, restoration and reception of Israel again? For if the first fruit be holy, that would be the Jews, Abraham, then the lump is also holy, that which comes from it. That's you and I. We are the direct spiritual offspring of Israel. And if the root be holy, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the authors of Scripture, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say the authors, but rather the, you know, the receivers of Scripture and those that wrote it down for us, if the root is holy, then so are the branches. That's you and I. And if some of the branches be broken off, speaking of the Jews that fell, and you, the Gentile, you and I, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, he says, then boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, remember, thou bearest not the root, but the root 
thee. Now here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, here's this tree, this tree of Israel. It has roots as deep as Abraham and it grew up through Isaac and Jacob and then through the 12 tribes that made up the trunk. And then the branches that flared out over, you know, all of the world, kind of this tree of life, if you would, through which God brought forth the scriptures and brought forth his son. And he says, but the tree, many of the branches rejected. They didn't receive the very Messiah that they were bringing forth. And so those branches were broken off, the falling of Israel. And he says that over here, there's another tree, a wild olive tree. It's not profitable for much. It doesn't bring forth good fruit. But some of those branches saw that tree of light, that tree of life over there and said, I believe, I see the benefit, the blessing of it. And some of those branches were broken from that wild olive tree. And then the master gardener, somehow in his perfect skill, was able to graft those branches into the broken stems that had been in their place previously. And that those wild branches that had no place upon that tree of life, that tree of light, God through his grace through his great salvation, the power of his blood, grafted the Gentiles into that tree. But then he warns us. He says, don't boast against the branches because you do not bear the root, but rather the root is what bears you. If it wasn't for Israel, there would be, you realize that there was no Jews. If there was no Israel, then you and I would not be sitting here saved today. That we, our salvation is the direct result of their existence and the power of God's spirit working through them to give us the word, to give us our savior. So he says, boast not against the branches, but if you boast, you bear not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, verse 19, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, Paul says, because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Be not high-minded, but rather fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, in other words, those branches of Israel that grew naturally out of that tree, he says, if God allowed those branches to be broken off, he didn't spare the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise, thou shalt also be cut off. And they also, the Jews that were broken off, if they abide not still in unbelief, they shall be grafted in again. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were graft contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be graft into their own olive tree? Now you understand the illustration that Paul is making here. His point is singular, that through the fall of the Jews, salvation was opened to the Gentiles. That's what God was doing Now, this was God's plan all along. This is God's in his mind from the very beginning that it would work this way. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when God first called Abraham at the very beginning, he he says that he told him that he would sire an entire nation 
And, and he gave him these words. He said, in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That God's intention in forming this nation of Israel was to bless and to reach all of the nations of the whole world. That was his intention from the first breath that he gave to Abraham. Now Paul, as we've been reading through Romans, has continually been quoting the prophets concerning God's intent to save the Gentiles. That throughout all of the Old Testament, God's been saying, I'm going to save the Gentiles. That the Gentiles are going to be saved and reached. But yet... As you read through the Gospels and you see the ministry of Jesus, and as you look at the book of Acts and the foundation of the church, the Gospel always goes to the Jews first, and only upon their rejection of it does it then go to the Gentiles afterwards. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus encounters a Syrophoenician woman. You know the story. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. And she comes to Jesus and she pleads with him for her daughter's deliverance. She's vexed with an unclean spirit. And Jesus says something so puzzling to her. So uh, almost it throws you off when you hear it in Mark chapter 7 verse 27. He says, it is not fitting to take the children's meat and to give it to the dogs. And you say, "Woo, that's kind of harsh, Jesus, that you would speak that way to this Gentile woman. And yet, you know, further study into the passage, you understand his context and what he was saying, that he was not insulting her, but he was simply making a point that I am come to the Jews. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells the story in chapter 22 of a man who had a, a feast, a wedding feast for his son. And, and he invited all the guests, but yet the guests rejected the invitation. They were too busy, too distracted. One had just bought a yoke of oxen. You know, another had just taken a wife. And, you know, they were just too busy. They couldn't come. And the master of the feast said, no, there's still room at the table. He said to his servants, go to the highways and the byways and bid whosoever will come. Upon the rejection of those that were invited, the invitation was opened to any who would come. It was through the rejection of the Jew that the Gentile was received. When Jesus sent forth the twelve to preach and to heal at first, or early in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, Jesus says these words to them as he sends them. He says, uh, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any of the city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Gospel was sent to the Jews. When the Spirit fell upon the church in the book of Acts, right at the very beginning, the gospel was preached only to the Jews until you come all the way to chapter 10, years, several years into the inception of the church. And then God, upon the rejection of the Jews, He opened the gospel, He opened salvation to the Gentiles, sending Peter to the household of Cornelius, and then calling Paul and making him an apostle that would go and reach the Gentile nations as the gospel was then opened up to the Gentiles. And Paul, this great apostle to the Gentiles, testifies himself at the beginning of this book, at the beginning of the book of Romans, in chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That the gospel was to go to the Jew, but that it would be through their rejection 
that then salvation would be extended to the Gentiles. You say, well, that's kind of crazy, that we would be second class in God's citizenry of heaven. No, no, no. That was God's intention from the very beginning. When God first called Abraham, he already had it in his mind how he was going to reach the whole world. John chapter 3, verse 16, we all know the verse, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It wasn't that God sought just to save this nation he created, but it would be through the fruit of that nation, his son coming into the world, that the whole of the nations would be reached, that the gospel would go to the ends of the world, and that God would redeem mankind to himself through it. This was God's intention, and so it was through the rejection of Israel that salvation was opened to the Gentiles. However, Paul tells us, don't be high-minded about that, but fear. Fear, because if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he spare not you. We are in no wise better than Israel. We're not different than them. They're not subservient to us, but rather it's we are their debtors. I mean, if it wasn't for Israel, we wouldn't be here. But it isn't just the salvation of the nations that motivates the blindness that God has put upon Israel. That's not the only reason that they've been cast off, so to speak, or blinded, as Paul keeps using that phrase over and over again. It's not just to reach the nation, but there's another reason. Because the blindness of Israel, and this is number two if you're taking notes, concerns his plan for the last days. The actual or the very blinding of Israel, the fact that they are blinded, is a very large part of God's plan for the second coming of Christ, the last days. Look at verse 25 with me, because Paul unlocks something for us here, very important. In verse 25 he says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Now that perks up my ears, because I like mysteries. In a sense, he's saying, I'm going to tell you a secret. I like secrets. A mystery in the Bible, whenever you come across that word, it means something that was previously unknown that's about to be shown to you. And Paul's going to show us something here. He's going to give us the key to unlock a whole bunch of prophecy. He says, I would not be ignorant that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness, and this is it, that blindness, in part, is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. This verse unlocks a huge mystery. A whole bunch is uncovered for us. Yes, he tells us, Israel is blinded, in part. Paul himself was an Israelite, and he wasn't blinded, so it wasn't as though all of them were. There's a remnant. But he says Israel is blinded, yes, but that this blindness, he tells us, is temporary. And he says that this blindness that was foreknown and foreplanned by God is going to end. That their eyes will be opened. That at a specific time, God is going to again begin dealing with the Jewish people. The Bible tells us very clearly that God holds all of the times in his hand. That he is sovereign over everything that will happen on planet earth. The Bible calls him the Alpha and the Omega. That he is the beginning and the ending. 
Personally, the Bible says that God knows each of our days before any of them are lived out. Jesus said that the angels don't know, not even I know, but the Father himself knows the time that will be the end, the day and the hour of the, of the second coming. That all of the times in God's plan are known by him and held within his hand. There is nothing that's left up to chance. All is controlled by the Father. The prophet Daniel was one of just a few of all the prophets that we know about throughout the scriptures, that his prophecy was not given in the land of Israel, in Jerusalem. The nation had been invaded, and the people had been taken as slaves to Babylon for a period of 70 years, and Daniel was among them. He was one that was taken in that captivity. And so when Daniel gave his prophecy, he didn't give it from Israel, he gave it from Babylon, where he was a slave with all of the rest of the Jews in his time. Now, 68 years into that captivity, they'd been there for 68 years. Daniel was an aged man at this time. Daniel was reading his Bible. He was reading Jeremiah's prophecy. And as he read Jeremiah's prophecy, he realized by reading the word of God that God had already said that Israel would be slaves in Babylon for a period of 70 years. Well, Daniel began to count up in his head how long they had been there. And he realized that they had been there for 68 years and that come 70, something was going to happen. He knew he was in prophetically significant times. So he began to pray. And he asked the Lord and he said, Lord, what would you have me to do? How should we as a nation order ourselves in light of these things? What's going to happen to us? What is the future of your people, this great people of Israel? And he interceded and prayed for the nation. And God answered his prayer as Daniel asked what was going to happen. Well, God not only answers Daniel's prayer specifically, but he gives him one of the most amazing prophecies in the whole Bible. He not only answers the question in the short term of what's going to happen in two years, but he answers the question all the way to the end of Israel's existence. He says, oh, you want to know what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. And then he gives him the answer to his prayer. He explains to Daniel the return of Israel to their land. He talks to him about the rebuilding of the city and the wall and tells him how long it's going to take. He tells, them the, him, he tells Daniel, now listen to me, because at first you're going to say, what did he just say? Just let me say it once. He tells Daniel the very day that the Messiah is going to present himself to the nation. It's right there, Daniel chapter 9. And then he tells him what's going to take place after that. Everything that concerns the nation of Israel, all the way from a set time to the end of their existence, God tells him all of it, and he does it all in about four verses. God's real good. Take me an hour and a half. God did it in four verses. <laughs> Now, the prophecy that I'm speaking to you about is recorded in Daniel chapter 9, in the ninth chapter of Daniel. If you have a Bible, you could turn there, or if you want to keep your brain intact, you could just follow on the screen and then get the tape and your pencil and do this again later. But the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel in verse 23, and he tells him these things. Gabriel speaks, and he says, At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter, and consider the vision. And now Gabriel gives to Daniel this incredible prophecy. He says, 70 weeks 
are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Now pause right there. The first thing that Gabriel tells Daniel is he says 70 weeks are determined upon your people and upon your holy city. Now, in the Aramaic, which, you know, the book of Daniel was written in, the word weeks is a a word, it's hepted. It might come up on the screen, I'm not sure, you know, it's possible, we'll see. Very small, you know. The word week is, is an Aramaic word, it's hepted, and it doesn't mean a week like we would talk about a week of seven days, but it talks about a period of seven. It's kind of like we would say a dozen. We might not say a dozen what, we would just say a dozen. And this word week is hepted. So what it's saying here is that 70 sevens, or 70 periods of seven, are determined upon thy people. And it isn't seven weeks, or a week is not seven days, you know, as we might think of it, but a week, a hepted rather, is a period of seven years. So Gabriel is telling Daniel that 70 periods of seven Years are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. So if you take 70 periods of seven years each and you multiply 70 by seven, it comes out to be 490 years. So essentially, Gabriel is telling Daniel that there are 490 years that have been set aside for your nation. In a sense, an hourglass has been given. A timer has been handed to Daniel. And that timer is entitled, if you would, or represents, he tells us there, thy people and thy holy city. Now, who are Daniel's people and where is his holy city? It's Israel and Jerusalem. So you have this timeline of 490 years, this timer, if you would, that all of the events that will concern Israel for the rest of their existence are encapsulated in this 490 year span. And God gives him the frame of it. He says, this is your time period, and it concerns you, Israel. And thus, you can begin to see the significance of Israel in God's plan for the last days. He says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Now, what will happen in these 70 weeks, these 490 years? He says, to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, And to bring in everlasting righteousness. And to seal up the vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy. Now that's everything that's going to happen all the way through the second coming and beyond. That's all of what God's intended purpose for even creating planet earth was. It's all listed right there. And God says it's all going to happen within this 490 year time span. Well, I'm certain that Daniel's excited. Put yourself in his shoes. Gabriel has come to you, and you're the one receiving this great revelation. The first question you would ask, Lord, when does the timer start? You know, when are you going to flip that hourglass over and, you know, let's start counting. This is great. What, What is this that you're telling me? Well, verse 25 answers the question. Gabriel goes on. He says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks or seven periods of seven years, which would be 49 years, and 62 weeks or 434 years, 
And the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. The first thing that he tells Daniel there is when the timer begins. The timer will begin, Daniel, when the commandment goes forth to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Remember, that's what Daniel's praying about. We've been here 68 years. When are we going back? And God says, listen, 490 years determined upon your people. That 490 years starts the moment the command is given for you to go back and rebuild. Well, I know you're all buzzing with excitement. Tell us, when was that? When was that command given? Well, Nehemiah chapter 2 gives the answer. It says, in the first day of the month Nisan, in the 20th year of the reign of uh, Artaxerxes. So, the first of Nisan, the 20th year of Artaxerxes, we compare that with our calendar and, you know, lay it side by side. It's March 14th, 445 B.C. On March 14th, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes Longimanus gives the command, Go, restore, rebuild Jerusalem, and thus the hourglass is flipped. The timer begins. Now, Daniel tells us very clearly that from that time, from that moment when that command goes forth, it will be a period of 49 years and 434 years. Now, add those two numbers together, 49, 434, mathematicians, you get 483 years. It will be 483 years from the time that that command goes forth until Messiah the Prince comes. Well, wait a minute, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, if, if the prophecy is true, if what the Bible is telling us you know, is actually right, then we should be able to figure that out, right? We should be able to plug that in and test it. Well, we can. See, you take 483 years, and you multiply that number by 360, because the the, the Bible uses a lunar year. There's 360 days in a lunar year. The Bible, every time a year is expounded, it's always in 360 days. So 483 times 360 days equals 173,880 days. So, March 14th, 445 B.C., you add 173,880 days to that with your calendar. I did this this week. I'm smiling. For those of you on the tape, no, I didn't. (laughs) But where does it bring you? It brings you to April 6th, 32 A.D. Well, what happened on April 6th, 32 AD? The answer is in Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, picking up in verse 37, Jesus had commanded his disciples to go and find a donkey that had been tied up that no one had ever sat on before. And he gave his disciples specific instructions to loose the colt and don't worry about the, you know, auto alarm that had recently been installed on it. Just get the, get the donkey and bring it. If anybody has a problem with it, just say the Messiah has need of them. The master has asked for them and they'll back off. And so they do what Jesus commands them to do and they bring Jesus the donkey and then Jesus gets on the donkey and he begins to make a descent into Jerusalem. And as he goes into Jerusalem, something that he had done many times before, something different happens this time. In verse 37 of Luke 19, it says, And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. 
saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Now at first read, first cut, if you would, as you look at this word, I mean, it's just a story. It's something that Jesus said. It's an event that happened. But think about the hugeness of this event. You see, for three and a half years, people had been trying to make the proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet every time the word comes out, Jesus has the same response. He says, shh, you're the Christ, Peter said, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, shh, the leper was cleansed and the man realized who Jesus was. And Jesus said, shh, don't tell anybody. All the time throughout, on the transfiguration, you know, they realized what was going on. I have eight or nine things that I don't have time to read here of times that Jesus said, shh, don't tell anybody. But now, this time, this time he comes into Jerusalem, and not only does he say, does he not say, shh, but he tells these Pharisees that if the disciples at this time hold their peace, that even the very stones would cry it out. Why? Because it was already foretold. It was already spoken that it would be on this day, 173,880 days after the command goes forth, that the Messiah would come. And Jesus, right on schedule, rides into Jerusalem, humble, on a donkey. And the people rejoice because their Messiah has come, at least those that could see. The Messiah comes, just like Daniel says, Jesus presents himself to them as their king. But wait, the prophecy in Daniel goes on. Not only will the Messiah come on that day, but in verse 26 of Daniel 9, it says that after this period of you know, 349 and 434, 483 years, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. See, Jesus came, the King, the Messiah was brought in. He was given to the nation just as it had been promised through the lineage of David. Jesus came to save them. But yet, Daniel says, Messiah will then be cut off, but not for himself. What's that speaking of? He went to the cross, didn't he? He hung there and he died. His life was cut off. His kingship over the people that he came to save was decimated. It was finished there as he hung on the cross and he died. And something happened at that time. As Jesus hung there on that cross, the stopwatch, the timer, the hourglass fell out of his hand. And when it hit the ground, it stopped. At 483 years, it paused, it stopped. Back over in Luke 19, read on. What happened right after Jesus comes as their king, their Messiah? Luke 19, 41. It says that when he was come near, he beheld the city and he wept over it, saying, if thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side. 
and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Jesus expected them to know Daniel chapter 9. It was right there for them to figure it out. To put it on their calendars. To understand that this would be the time that their Messiah would come. But yet, they missed it. And the result of them missing this is blindness came upon them. Look again at verse 42. He says, saying, if thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. Listen, but now they are hidden from thine eyes. What did Paul say happened to Israel? He said blindness in part has happened unto Israel. That the election are saved, but that the rest are blinded. That they've been blinded. It's the very thing that Jesus is saying here. The timer with these 490 years, this hourglass stops. It falls on its side at this time. It's suspended there. 483 years have passed, but let me ask you, how many remain? Mathematicians? There was 490 to begin. 483 have passed. How many yet remain? There are seven years left on that timer. There are seven years yet left where God will yet again deal with the nation of Israel, where he will again pick them up as Paul says, the restoration of the Jews. He's going to restore them and bring them back. But what is that seven-year period? Anybody know, Bible students? Good. The tribulation. That's right. Now you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's going on? What's the deal with the pause? Why the pause? Why is that timer suspended? What's going on? What for? Let me answer the question. Romans 11 the salvation of the Gentiles. It's the mystery that Paul is trying to explain in chapter 11, verse 25. He says, I will not have you be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That right now, God is not dealing with the Jew. He hasn't cast them off forever. The church has not replaced them. We are not the new Israel. But rather, we are in a very special and specific period right now called the age of grace. The church age, if you will, which is not Jew only, but it's Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, young and old, all inclusive, whosoever will, let them come as the gospel goes out to the nations. But listen, There's coming a time, there's coming a day when the fullness of the Gentiles will be complete. Two chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus was expounding to his disciples the things that would happen in the last days, he tells them this in Luke 21, verse 24. Speaking of the Jews, he said, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, listen, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Do you understand what's being told to us here? What's being revealed by Paul? This mystery, the secret that he's telling us? 
He's saying, listen, right now, you are in a special time. This is the age of grace, the church age, where God is calling whosoever will to come. He set Israel aside. They're on the shelf. But listen, there is a set time. Jesus said the times of the Gentiles. And there's a set number of Gentiles that will be saved. Both of those things are known by God. Both the timing and the last soul that will be saved that will make up the completion of this Gentile body that God is calling. And then, the Gentile age, the church age, the age of grace, will be over with. And that ends with an event called... Louder? Good. (laughs) We don't need to do this. Hey, we can end on time. Let's go home. You guys already know. The rapture will be caught up The Bible says, Paul again, giving us another mystery, he says, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, will be transformed. This corruption will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. This death will be swallowed up with victory. And will be instantly, immediately in the presence of the Lord. But how many years are left on Israel's timetable? Seven. Now the rapture does not start that timer again. There's an event coming that will start that timer again. And Gabriel told Daniel what it would be. The last verse in the prophecy that Gabriel gave to Daniel, verse 27. It says that he, speaking of a coming world ruler. That he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. A period of seven years. He will confirm a covenant. That is the event that starts the timer again ticking. Not the rapture of the church, but rather the signing of a covenant. There's a world leader that's coming. He's going to confirm a covenant between the Jews and whoever else needs to be involved. A covenant that is set to last for seven years. A peace covenant that's brokered by a world ruler that will be so peaceful that he'll win the Nobel Prize for bringing world peace. He'll be mistaken by the Jews as being their Messiah because he's the only one that was able to solve this perpetual problem over there in that land. A man so political he'll be mistaken for an Abraham Lincoln. So eloquent that he'll be mistaken for a Winston Churchill. So intelligent, he'll be mistaken for an Einstein. And yet internally, he'll be so diabolical that he'll be mostly like a Hitler. But the world will look on and say, this is our savior. This is the one who has solved the world's problems. The Jews will concur and say, he's rebuilt our temple. He knows what we need. This is the one that we've been waiting for. The Bible calls this man the Antichrist. He won't be wearing a red suit and skirting a tail with a pointy end and wearing horns on his head and going, "Ah!" but rather he's going to obtain the kingdom by flatteries. He's going to look so much like Jesus that the world is going to look on and say, this is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the one that God has sent. And they'll be shouting Hosanna to this man who holds their death in his hand. Now this covenant that Daniel talks about, this covenant that's going to begin this final seven-year period where God will again deal with the nation of Israel, this covenant starts the last seven years of that timer. When that covenant is signed, 
that hourglass will be set aright and seven years will go. And it will be during that time that God will restore Israel. They're going to wake up halfway through that seven years. They're going to realize that this man is a fraud. And they're going to realize that Jesus really was their Messiah. They're going to flee to their place in the wilderness where God is going to begin to restore them. 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams will go out into the whole world and preach the everlasting gospel. God will again restore this nation. The very thing that Paul is talking about when he says, if the fall of them be glory, how much more will their restoration be glory? Why will it be glory? Because it means Jesus is right at the door. And we'll be with him. For us, it'll be glorious. We'll be already in his presence. So glorious. The second thing we know about this covenant is that it happens after the rapture. The covenant that starts the last seven years will not be signed until we are gone. You and I, if you are saved here, you and I will not be around to experience the signing of that covenant. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 Verses 3 through 8, Paul says this to the church at Thessalonica. He says, let no man deceive you by any means. He says, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And that's happening, by the way. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now you know what withholds that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now restrains will restrain until he is taken out of the way. Now, the church is weak. Our light is dim, but yet there is still something that we are preserving in terms of morality and sanity upon this planet Earth. But there's coming a day when that which restrains and that which keeps things sane will be taken out of the way at the rapture of the church. And what happens then after the rapture? Verse 8, And then shall that wicked one be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The Antichrist, that world ruler who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, who claims himself to be God, will not be revealed until that which restrains is taken out of the way. You say, well, isn't that which restrains the Holy Spirit? Couldn't that be speaking of the Holy Spirit? Well, listen, the Holy Spirit's in you. So if the Holy Spirit's taken and you're not, well, God bless you, but I don't want to be here. I don't want to be on planet Earth without the Holy Spirit, you know. So either way, take your pick. What's the point of all of this? Wow, we're actually going to finish almost on time. The point that Paul is making in all of this, that he's going through in these chapters and talking about, is that the falling away of Israel, the fact that they have been broken off, if you would, that they've fallen, that it serves God's purpose, and it's all part of His plan in, first of all, saving the nations, and second of all, culminating world events. That it's all part of God's plan. He's got it all in His hand. The times are in His hands. Now for us, for you and I, as we apply this and go home, Israel, for you and I, shows us where we are. 
As we look at the nation Israel, as God says through Gabriel to Daniel that this is what you look at. This is the timeline. This is the timepiece if you want to understand where you're at. And for you and I to understand where we are on God's prophetic calendar, we look at the nation of Israel. Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37. We're not going to, you don't I see Bibles turning, please. <laughs> yeah, we're going to read 36 and 37 real quick. You know, no. Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37 talk about, very specifically, how God in the last days is going to draw the people of Israel that have been broken off, that have been cast away, that have been scattered throughout the whole world, that he's going to begin to draw them back into their land. You know the song you used to sing when you were a kid about the foot bone to the leg bone to the knee bone to the thigh bone to the hip bone, that whole thing? That's actually scripture. Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. As God talks about how he's going to begin to draw his people back into their land. And that as he does that, he's preparing them for this last time when he's going to begin again to deal with them. That it will be in the last days, it says. And yet we have seen that take place. We're on the far end of that. Starting around the turn of the century, 1900. Being ratified by the United Nations on May 14th, 1948. Israel was voted a sovereign nation. Given their own place. Borders. They've been strengthened and reestablished. All of the bones and the flesh are in place. It's all sitting right there. Jesus himself said. When he was talking to his disciples about the signs of the last days, he said, when you see the fig tree blossom, it was a direct reference to the people and the nation of Israel coming back into their land. He said, when you see the fig tree blossom, you know that summer is near. When Israel comes back into the land, you'll know that my coming is near. He said, even at the doors. In fact, he took it one step further in Matthew 24, 34. He said that, verily I say unto you, this generation, the only generation he could be speaking to is the generation that sees it. This generation that sees Israel brought back shall not pass until all these things be fulfilled. Think about the size of what's happening right in front of our eyes. A sovereign nation of Israel resurrected and brought back into their land 2,000 years without a homeland. 2,000 years maintaining their national identity, though they were scattered throughout the world and persecuted wherever they went. And yet God said through Jeremiah that Israel will never cease to be a nation before me forever as long as the sun rises and sets. Because God keeps his word. And now God has kept his word. He's brought them back into the land. And listen church. He's going to keep his word and come again. Jesus is coming. And we're right on the cusp of that. We're living in the last days. So what does this simple study in Romans chapter 11 mean to you and I? It means a lot. It means a lot. It means we're almost, we're almost done. We're almost finished. I mean, look around at what's going on in the world today. Jesus said, when you see these things, look up, because your redemption draws near. Well, if you know Jesus, what does this mean to you? As we, we do wrap this up. In fact, the musicians even can come. What I see as a pastor is that the wind is blowing real hard. 
is that as the time comes to a close and as things become more and more chaotic, I'm watching more and more people fall away. Just like Paul said would happen, that there will be a falling away first. That the current of the culture and the sway of popular society is so strong, it's wiping people out left, right, and center. I corresponded with a girl that I've known for a long time. She walked with Jesus for eight years. And after eight years, she said, I just don't want to be a Christian anymore. And she walked away. She said, I just want to live. I don't want to, I don't want to be bound anymore. I want to live. And so she threw off her faith in Jesus Christ. I talked to another young woman. She said, I just want to have fun. I want to live my life. And so she walked away, walking away from the faith. I talked to a middle-aged man who was brought up by the Lord, saved at a good age in his teenage years, grounded and discipled. And he's at that point where he's saying, I just don't want to do it anymore. I want to experience life. I don't want to experience Christianity anymore. And you just watch Satan ripping people's lives apart, lying to them. They're buying into it. You see him tearing apart marriages and families, promising to give them prosperity or promising to give them some dream or some false reality. The wind is blowing hard because we're in the last days, church. So what does it mean to you and me? It means hold on. Jesus said, he that endures unto the end, he shall be saved. And he didn't lie to us about how difficult it might be. It might not be so bad situationally, but it's real bad spiritually. Hold on. Hold on. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, hold fast to the things which you have heard. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, I know that what you heard tonight was a little bit complicated. This was a meat Bible study, not a milk Bible study. And maybe you're here for the first time or you're here and you don't know Jesus personally. And maybe some of that was a little bit tedious to you. But if you were listening at all, I know you heard enough through Daniel's prophecy and to see the Bible coming together that you know that the things that you're hearing tonight are true. That you sense within yourself as you look around the world and you consider what's taking place scripturally, spiritually, and physically out there, that you know that there's a real God. That you know that there's a real truth. And you also intuitively know that you're not right and that you're not ready. That if that event called the rapture should happen now, that, well, you're not sure. Well, I want to give you an invitation to respond to the gospel. To let Jesus Christ, the one who died for the sins of the world, to let him die for you. To let the blood that was shed to spare humanity, the wrath of God and eternal hell, that you would let that blood wash your soul clean as well. I want to give you the invitation and the opportunity to come to Jesus and not to put it off. As the musicians play and the song begins, if you're here and you want to receive Christ, you want to say, Jesus, I need to be saved. I want to be sure that I'm going. I realize and hear the things that are being said, and I know that they're true. When the music begins, I would just ask you to stand to your feet. Not because you're to be embarrassed or humiliated or counted in any way. That's not the point. The point is that Jesus said that if you confess me before men, that I will confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. But a confession of Christ is to always be a public thing. So as the music begins and I stop flapping, if that's you and you want to respond to Jesus, just stand up in your seat. And then what's going to happen is that the musicians will pause and I'm going to lead you in a prayer. It's very simple. Jesus, I want to be saved. I know that you died for me. I believe that, you know, that this is for me and I, I want it for myself. And, and I ask you to come into my life and be my Lord and my Savior. 
And as you pray that prayer, you're going to feel something. God's going to move into your life. You're going to feel the peace of God just fill you. You're going to feel the bondage of sin being broken over you. And you're going to sense that something changed, that something happened. As God honors His Word and He says, I will save all who call upon me. So as the musicians play and the Christians are praying, I invite you, if you want to receive Christ, just stand to your feet. Thank you.